In the first two steps which we have talked about were the purification of virtue and the purification of mind. Now, under purification of mind comes the concentration for the meditation and all the steps I have explained about meditation. And under purification of virtue was primarily the substitution of the unwholesome to the wholesome. The next step, the third one, is purification of view. And there's a great deal that needs to be purified. In fact, the Buddha gave a discourse. It's called the Brahmajala Sutta, the net of views. The first sutta, the first discourse in the long discourses. And in it he mentions 62 different views which are like headings for all the views which we can possibly have. We can put all the views that are humanly possible, possible under those headings. And he says quite clearly that none of them can be correct. All of them are based upon the premise that there is an individual person that has that view. And since the premise is wrong, the view has to be wrong. Now it has a certain validity, the view, in a relative relationship in the relativity where we have this, the appearance of being individually separate. But on an absolute level, there isn't a single view that can be sustained. Where we come from is wrong. So what we have as an opinion is immediately false. Now, in order to get right view, we have certain instructions, certain ways of inside meditation. Now, in the first place, when I've been talking about meditation, I've been mostly stressing, becoming calm, tranquil, reaching a different level of consciousness through that concentration. We must not neglect seeing the other side also. Meditation has two directions. It has many different methods. The Buddha taught 40 methods. But it only has two directions, calm and insight. And we have to be quite sure what we're doing, which one of those two we are using at a given moment in order to realize where we're going with it. Now, to put it very simply, when we are concentrated on the breath, 
and actually staying on it or coming to the very pleasant feeling or being quite concentrated on our walking we're working towards calm towards a tranquility a peacefulness which goes far beyond eventually far beyond anything that we have ever experienced before when we label the thought or when we recognize the breath as being impermanent or when we realize that in our sweeping the emotions or the sensations are totally impermanent we don't have to react we are working towards insight the two always have to be practiced we can sometimes practice more of the one than of the other but as a balanced meditation path and in order to bear the kind of fruit that it can both have to be practiced a little bit of insight brings a little bit of calm a little bit of calm brings a little bit of insight now there are quite a number of people particularly westerners whose thinking apparatus has been so habitually used that they cannot become calm they're just not able to stay on the breath then the minority most people can but if one belongs to that category where the mind just will not obey one just has to gain a bit of insight first it doesn't matter which way one goes if we gain a bit of insight and see everything as being totally impermanent the mind finally comes down and says all right then i'll be quiet for a while <laughs> it's all impermanent anyway so it can be either way it doesn't matter which one comes first but along the path we have to practice both the first one the calm the tranquility shows us quite clearly that the world cannot produce what we're looking for and it makes our awareness our consciousness fine subtle and expandable so that we have the possibility of reaching quite different levels of understanding insight is the path which was peculiar to the buddha because the meditation path already existed he followed a path which had already been in existence for at least 2500 years before he came on the scene which was being practiced and still is being practiced but the insight resulting from that was something new that was his reform movement he didn't have any intention of starting a new religion 
he was just trying to reform the old one <coughs> exactly the same what Jesus tried to do both didn't succeed their followers then started a new religion we're lucky that we have the instructions so the inside aspect of the path is that what the Buddha added to the tranquility path and he added it in detail and exact instruction so that we have something to go by now one of them one of the methods already <coughs> mentioned today and I'll just briefly repeat it it's paying attention to the four elements it can be done in one of two ways either we can become aware of them as we do the sweeping of the body and as we become aware of them and finish with the sweeping we can use them as meditation subjects one of them or all four it doesn't matter not to become calm and that's the difference between calm and inside meditation but to be concentrated on that aspect of us let's just say earth element to be concentrated on that aspect of us and going out with the mind to all that surrounds us to become totally connected in a meditative way no longer in an intellectual way what I'm saying right now is of course on the intellectual basis there's no other way to communicate but when we do it meditatively it's an experience and that's the difference between thinking about and actually experiencing knowing it from the inside out when we know it from the inside out it's our own and it has an impact on our psyche so that's one possibility the other possibility is when we try to be concentrated and the mind just won't do it it just doesn't obey to use that as a focus of attention earth element, fire element, water element or wind element either one of them seeing it in oneself quite clearly and then again going outward to see how it connects we can either do it through recognize them in the sweeping or just by deliberately, deliberately putting our mind on one of them this is one facet of insight meditation which can bring very good results <coughs> we have many others I will mention two more methods which are <coughs> very useful and everyone should go to that kind of method once in a while even when the mind is getting concentrated not at the same time by any means 
but at another time. The concentration of the mind which leads us to the pleasant feeling and then to joy can at other times, that strength of mind can at other times be used for inside meditation also. One method which is particularly useful if we find it difficult to get focused on the breath or even focused on the sensations is to imagine that we're opening up the body having a zipper in front and taking all the bits and pieces out one after another Everybody knows approximately what's in there. (laughs) Kidneys and gallbladder and intestines and bile and uh, a heart and a stomach and blood and phlegm and all sorts of things. So we take it all out and put it in front of us. (laughs) And if we don't like the idea, it's very important to do it. And then, having a look to see which one calls out and says, me. (laughs) In fact, if we take a good look, we would probably not be interested to have that stuff called me. (laughs) It's not particularly beautiful or attractive. We can go one step further. We can take the then remaining skeleton and also take it apart and put it on a little heap just to make sure that all the bits and pieces are there. And have another good look and see, okay, where is me and all that? And then when we're quite convinced me isn't there, we'll put it all back inside doesn't have to be in the proper order, it doesn't matter. (laughs) And zip it all up again. And then me is back, sitting here, as big as ever. (laughs) So look at that. It's a very interesting and very forceful way of recognizing that there must be some sort of mistaken view. One moment it is and another moment it isn't. It's almost like one of these things that children play with where they have pictures. There's a tree and there's a head of a cow in the uh, uh, branches. And one time you look at it and you can see it quite clearly. And next moment you look at it and it's gone. You can't find it anymore. It's the same with this elusive me. One moment it's there, big and strong, whole size, full size. And then next moment you do that, can't find it. So it is a useful way of investigation. It is not useful to say, well, I know I'm not the body. That's not useful because If you were, let's say, on a busy street and 
you're standing in the middle of it and a huge truck is coming at you you'll soon know that this is me again so it's no use just accepting the fact intellectualizing it and saying of course I know all about that so what's new no it's very very helpful to actually do that in a meditative frame of mind the mind is different in meditation whether one is fully concentrated or not the mind is always a little different in meditation than it is when it is just discursively thinking or discussing it has a different quality to it the more it can concentrate naturally the stronger that quality is the clearer it can see but any mind that meditates has strength in it now this particular way of inside meditation has great value if one has very often the um, problem of being passionately attracted to the opposite sex and finding that a bother if one finds it a great pleasure never mind <laughs> but if one finds it a bother then this particular way of looking at oneself is a great help because one gets to know something different about this body all we ever see is the skin bits and pieces of the skin or the clothing and the face that's all we ever see of it and it gives the illusion of something immensely desirable but if we think for a moment of all the aches and pains that this body has produced in the past few days <laughs> I think we'll lose the idea of it being so utterly desirable it's necessary unfortunately imagine for a moment you'd be sitting here meditating without a body wouldn't that be very simple very pleasurable no problem at all just a mind meditating very nice but there's this body and it's so glad to get up after 45 minutes mm -hmm. and it feels hungry and it feels thirsty and it feels tired and it's got to go to the toilet and then there's somebody else there <laughs> and <laughs> all the problems that it has so that this is such a highly desirable phenomena is also a wrong view it's an illusion we have thought it like that we have made it up to be like that so that's one way and then we have one other way which is very important and which I have briefly touched upon already but I will detail it more because it's something that we have to eventually come to terms with on this inside path now we see ourselves most of the time if not all of the time as one whole lot one whole lump one whole being 
and we don't differentiate between mind and body when the body aches the mind aches and when our mind aches the body starts aching too so we think the whole thing works together and we don't really take pains to separate so the first step into insight the very first step into insight is the recognition that although they are dependent upon each other there are two the body breathes and the mind watches it the body can't watch it and the mind breathes it's impossible so we have two which have separate functions and these separate functions are distinct from each other there is interdependence of course but totally separate function now that becomes very clear in the walking meditation if you put our attention instead of becoming calm and concentrated and peaceful on the inside the mind has to say do walking meditation and then the body goes and does it the mind also says turn around now that's far enough and then the body turns around it's very clear in that in the attention on the breath it can be equally clear we don't usually pay attention to it we also have to through that become aware of the fact that the mind is actually much more important than the body everything hinges on mind we can overcome bodily dysfunction very difficult if not impossible to overcome mental dysfunction we could look at it like this if we have a body lying here in front of us that has no mind in it we can cut it to bits and pieces and it's okay the body won't object nobody will object but put a mind into it and what do we have we have assault and murder so we have that as our first step into insight the distinction of the two functions of which one is more important than the other and then comes the buddha's explanation what the mind consists of now that is extremely interesting because every thinking person which we all are is interested in their own mind and sometimes wonders or all the things it throws up but it is extremely important to know what the buddha said about the mind and not only what he said that it consists of but also the fact that we consist of nothing else that's all there is to us now that is first of all a statement which we need neither believe nor disbelieve but it then becomes an inside meditation so first we have the statement these are called the five khandas in pali 
in Sanskrit the skandhas with an <coughs> S in front, and in English the five aggregates. So we know as much as we did at the beginning. None of the words mean anything. We also say the five heaps, and we also say the five aggregates of clinging. So one of them is the body. We've already dealt with that. We know all about it, but all these bits and pieces. So now we have the mind that has four. And they're usually enumerated in this order. Feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness. But they don't work in that order. And I have no idea why they should be enumerated in that order because they certainly don't operate like that. And this is something I've mentioned to you at the very beginning when I talked about the unpleasant feelings which arise when we sit in meditation, sit in one position long enough. The first thing that happens is sense contact, which is consciousness. This word consciousness in Pali is vinyana, and it has several meanings. In this case, where we're talking about the five aggregates or the four aggregates of mind, it has the meaning of sense consciousness. Now, in the meditation, when we sit, the sense consciousness that I was talking about was the touch consciousness. So that's the very first thing that arises is the sense consciousness. The next thing that happens is the feeling. It always does. There's always feeling. Enlightened one also has feeling. It's not that an enlightened one then becomes a vegetable and feels nothing. There's always feeling. From the feeling comes the perception, the naming. So we have this unpleasant feeling in the right knee, let's say. So the mind says, ooh, that's painful. Very painful. So that's perception. That's why I said today, change the perception. Say it's poking, stabbing, uh, heavy. Don't say painful. Because the next thing is the mental formation, which is also called the karma formation. Because now we start making karma by disliking the pain or by wanting to keep something that we like. We make karma at that moment. So our reaction is karma making. In Pali there's a sankaras and they're translated in both ways, mental formations and karma formations. Now what we have are four aspects of mind working in this order. Sense consciousness, feeling, perception, mental formation. And as a meditative subject, it is extremely important to check inside of oneself to see whether there's anything else. Find out, is there anything else? That's the first step. If there is something else, please let me know about it. The next step is to find out how does this me illusion arise? If there is nothing but a body, 
and we've dealt with that successfully. We've looked at it and said, no, no, these bits and pieces, that can't be me. And uh, we've dealt with that so we can uh, cross it off. So now we have those four bits. Now where does the me arise within those four? How does it actually come about? The Buddha says because of clinging. That's why they're called the five aggregates of clinging. In Pali, the pancha upadana khandas. Pancha is five. Upadana is clinging. We cling to them. We consider them our own. Now when this unpleasant feeling arises, that's my pain, isn't it? Well, it can't be yours. You're not feeling it, so it's got to be mine. But when it goes away, did I go away? Or did just the feeling go away? How come that I consider this mine when it only lasts a short while and specifically when I didn't even want it in the first place? Nobody wants it. And yet when it's there, it's considered mine. So why am I getting what I don't want? Who has brought it to me? Is there an outer force or is there a wrong view? Is there a kind of convoluted viewpoint which makes it appear as if all these aspects of mind belong to me? I'm hanging on to them. Now, particularly, most people hang on to that which is pleasing and lovely. And this is our inability to be liberated. Gee, that sounds like feminism, doesn't it? (laughs) I didn't mean it that way. I mean liberation as Nibbana. Because the lovely, the pleasant is what we cling to and with the unlovely and the unpleasant we cling to the wish that it may go away so we have this clinging but our much stronger clinging is to the pleasant this is what prevents us from being free And because we have so much unpleasantness also in our lives, the pleasantness is so appreciated that we can't even imagine not to want it, not to hang on to it. But we could, for a moment, recognize, maybe, that because it doesn't last, even the pleasantness is unpleasant. We can't keep it. And because of that, we may, if we can see that clearly, be induced to reduce our clinging. Eventually, if we really want to get rid of all dukkha, we have to get rid of all clinging. But in the meantime, a little bit at a time. So the meditation process is, first, to investigate is there anything else except 
<coughs> sense consciousness, feeling, perception, and mental formation. And then to investigate where does the me arise from? Because it's got to sit within those four somewhere. And then we can investigate further and see whether any feeling, any perception, any mental formation or any sense consciousness that we've ever had, whether we still have it. So me must have disappeared a million times and be regenerated. So how can we then think of ourselves as something solid if it's constantly disappearing and coming back? So it appears to have a wave motion. And then we can also investigate whether this me illusion, this me feeling about this inner being, whether that is to our benefit or not. Now, if the meditation has become concentrated and we have either some peacefulness and calm or have experienced already some of the absorptions, then to do this investigation would be after that, afterwards. Because a calm mind, one which has had some pleasantness, some joy in the meditation, has entirely different perspective. It can accept the fact that this is obviously some wrong view that we're perpetuating. But if we haven't had any calm and no concentration whatsoever, the Mm -hmm. mind will reject this. It will come up with ideas like, um, well, if there's no me, what am I sitting here for? Or um, if there's no me, why am I trying to meditate? Or why am I, who's trying to have loving kindness? And who is the one that's trying to figure all this out? <coughs> and it will reject it actually out of hand. It will say, oh, well, that, that, that can't be right. Or that might be for some other people, that's not for me. But the mind which is very calm through the concentrated state of meditation and has actually become peaceful. It has has a different basis on which it can rest. And it can look from a different level at this to try and find out what goes on there. We can investigate the existence of the Kandas, their ownership and also our wrong view about them. If none of these mental concomitants remain one moment after another, why does the me remain? Where does it sit? We all know that we cannot remember anything we've thought about, even just a moment ago. We sometimes have have very great trouble remembering the things we need to remember. 
never mind all the stuff we don't want to remember. We, through our meditation, we've already become aware of the fact that our thought processes are constantly changing. Everybody has become aware of that. There's nobody exempt from that. We have already become aware that our feelings are constantly changing. And yet, we still believe in a solid me. Now, please don't take that to mean that there's a non-solid me. It just means that the me gives us the idea that there is some solidity somewhere. And yet, everything we experience speaks against it. Everything that ever happens to us speaks against solidity. We're building this up, this solidity idea, because we think it will protect us from danger. On the contrary, it does nothing of the sort. Because what we do with that solidity idea is that we try to protect it. And therefore, we constantly feel endangered. Because there is no way to protect something that doesn't exist. And that's why we feel resentful, and that's why we feel hurt, and that's why we feel um, like we'd like to shut, shut others out, because we cannot protect this thing that we call me, because it isn't there. And also, the reason for one of our many problems is the fact that we need to have a reinforcing system for this illusory me. And if this reinforcing system does not come about, support system from others, then we feel as if we have been treated very badly and we might even also retreat into our shell or we might retaliate with uh, anger because something that doesn't exist needs constant support to make it believe that it does exist. This is a difficulty to become in becoming concentrated. The thought process reinforces the me illusion. Anything that we think, even when we think, oh, I'm concentrated, or I'm watching the breath, or I'm doing all right, all of that reinforces the me illusion. And it can only go when, for moments at a time, we do not need to reinforce it. This may give us a clue to the fact that this constant need for reinforcement is a proof of the fact that it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. That we have made it up, dreamt it up, because of the fact that to live in the reality of constant change and transparency would not satisfy our greed. It would not satisfy our craving to be. And our craving to be is what brought us here as human beings. Otherwise we wouldn't be here.
So we are actually in a difficult position. But if we would like to ease our position a little, these methods of inside meditation can be useful. They are only useful for the person who has seen Dukkha quite clearly and is fed up with it. Says, I've had enough of it. I want to know the truth. As long as we're not totally fed up with our own Dukkha, we're still going to try to get out of reality because we're still thinking there must be something somewhere that's going to make me totally happy or someone somewhere. As long as we have that little loophole, we don't want to see the truth. But when the mind is actually come, has actually come to the point where it says, all right, I know, I've tried it all, and what I haven't tried, I don't want to try. I want to know the real truth. The Buddha promised, there's only one thing I teach, and that's suffering and its end to reach. And the mind says, okay, I really want to know. Then it will do this kind of insight, meditation, insight, investigation, with determination to see the truth in it. As long as we think there's a loophole somewhere in the world, that if only, you know, our if only list, if only my husband would understand me better, or if only the kids were already married, or if only I had a better job, or the weather would improve, or whatever it may be, the neighbors would shut up, or whatever it is that we're looking for, this long if only list. As long as we have that, and we haven't crossed it off all yet, we haven't come to the end of the list yet, we don't want to know. Only when that list has been put aside, and we realize that once that list is finished, a new one arises, then we can look. It's a matter of time. Some people want to look now, some people want to look in 10 years from now, and some people want to look in 10 lives from now. It doesn't matter. Eventually, we might all look, otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here. It's not necessarily a matter of doing it right now for everybody. But if one wants to know where all the misery and the difficulties come from, that's the way to investigate. The five khandhas are one of the most important investigation inside subject in the whole of the Buddha's teaching. And they can give us at least a clue to our wrong views. We see in them the three characteristics of existence. I've mentioned them before, I mentioned them again. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness. And if we look at ourselves and see this in the khandhas, in the aggregates, see those three, at least get an inkling of them, eventually it will come to the point where we see those three 
in everything. That's the next step on the inside path. But there's one thing I'd like to mention about this. And that's the fact that when we see the unsatisfactoriness in all that arises and passes away because it doesn't remain, that doesn't mean that we're going to become unhappy. On the contrary, it means exactly the opposite. We become unhappy because we don't want to see that within this system that we live in, the law of nature, where everything changes constantly, nothing can be totally satisfactory because we don't want to see that. That's why we become unhappy. Because we expect something and we want to hang on to it and we want to keep it and we want to make it the way we want it. But the minute we accept the fact that because everything changes constantly, nothing can be totally satisfactory and there isn't a real core in it. We see everything from the standpoint of a mind which has accepted universal dukkha and is no longer concerned with individual dukkha. What bothers me is only what bothers your universe. So why should I worry about it? There's nothing to worry about. The whole universe is transient, transitory, impermanent, constantly <coughs> contracting and expanding, which in itself is irritation and most likely painful. So if the universe is doing that, and my legs or my back or my neck is doing that, so what's there to worry about? It's all one and the same. The universality of dukkha and the universality of impermanence and the acceptance of that give us the insight and the ability to look at everything with a light heart. And the essential unsatisfactoriness because of the transitory nature of it all, does not produce more dukkha. On the contrary, does exactly the opposite. It produces the lightheartedness, the acceptance, and the joy of the moment. The joy of the moment is the moment of life, the moment of being, the moment of breathing, the moment of experiencing, all of it connected with joy. We can only have that purity of joy when we've seen the reality of the dukkha. So these are three methods of investigation for insight. We can pick the one we like, <coughs> we can do all three. They are best done after the mind has been concentrated, after the mind has had some peace and calm. They are not contemplation, they are meditation. 
because we need to focus strongly on the inner happening. These parts of mind are happening all the time. So we don't have to think about them, we just want to experience them. This kind of investigation will loosen our hold on this imaginary solidity that we think we have. It will not remove it totally, but it will certainly loosen it. And the looser we are with that, the easier it is to live. Because everything is constantly pushing against this solidity. Nothing in the world underwrites it. There's nothing that we can see in the world that will help us to underwrite it. So the less we keep it going, the easier it is for us. As we watch our thoughts arising and ceasing and our sensations and emotions arising and ceasing, if that doesn't give us a clue, we haven't watched closely enough. It must give a clue to reality. Reality is constantly moving. There's nothing that's stationary. And because it's moving, and because we are moving with it, if we let our minds move with it, we have no resistance. But if you have, for instance, a little stream, and you don't like the way the water runs, so you're putting stones in it, make a little dam so that it will run a different way that creates turbulence this is what we're doing we're creating turbulence within because we don't like the way it actually is it's just moving all the time and we're moving with it should we leave it alone in our mind and just let it run no turbulence it just flows there might be enough about that subject. If you have any questions, now is the time to ask them. Yeah. Who is it who decides that I want to purify myself or whatever? I mean, who makes the decision? Uh, instead of saying who, say what. What? Okay. Think about it for a moment. What? makes a decision. I don't know. <coughs> well, it can't be the body, can it? No. So it must be what's left. <coughs> what do we consist of? It has to do with the heart, doesn't it? Well, you can call the mind the heart, yes. Yeah, you wanted to hear the mind. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. You can say heart. Chitta means both. I don't want to hear anything. If I wanted to hear something, I wouldn't be sitting here, I can assure you. <laughs> Chitta means pose. So, why would the mind decide 
I want to choose the good, I want to purify myself or whatever. What is it in it that goes in that direction right, instead well, of in the other? Well, ask somebody who goes in the other direction and you'll see the difference. The one brings joy and happiness. And no, no. There may be people, and I'm sure there are plenty of them, who have no interest in going towards goodness. <coughs> None whatsoever. So, and then there are those that are. So what, what is the difference then? The difference is where they're going. So why does one person want to become a university professor and another person wants to be a doctor and a third person wants to be a gardener? Why? Exactly. Anusias, underlying tendencies. You're quite right. The uh, tendencies that we have are the underlying fundamental, the underlying fundamental basis for our hindrances. And the tendencies are in everybody, but different strengths. We all have underlying tendencies, seven of them. I don't know if there's enough time to talk about all of that. But certainly tendencies, you're quite right. Inclinations, tendencies. And you know, these also change. They also don't remain the same. Somebody might go away from this course saying, I'm going to meditate every day. And three weeks later, say, what, meditation? What's that? <coughs> do I really have to do this every day? Once a week might do. Tendencies, constantly changing. One day we're convinced we're going to purify ourselves, and the next day, well, you know, somebody else might come along and convince of us, us of something else. Easily influenced, very easy. That's why we have to watch very carefully what we allow into the mind. Is that the same as karma tendencies? Uh, no. They they have a relationship. Having made karma we have those tendencies, but they're not the same. Karma, literally translated, means action. But the Buddha said, karma or monks, I declare, is intention. So all our intentions, whether we know we have them or not, doesn't matter. In thought, speech, and action, are karma making and have resultants which we also call karma which is technically totally wrong should be called vipaka the resultant is called vipaka in Pali but since it has become um, common in the west to call the action and the result karma we'll keep on doing that but our tendencies which are underlying all our difficulties are produced by that and karma is made because we think 
we are somebody. The minute we stop thinking that we are an individual person and actually feel the emptiness of all phenomena within, not think it but feel it, then we make no more karma. At this point in time, we're making karma constantly. And while we are trying to meditate, we're making very good karma. Tendency, by the way, is a technical term in the Buddhist uh, terminology. And it has a very specific meaning. It is very much connected, first of all, with karma, but very much connected also with our me illusion. That's where these tendencies arise from. So what else have we got? Anything else? I just um, wondered, um, your, your speech, to all your talks on the Dharma, um, are permeated by a sense of humor. And I, I wondered, um, following the spiritual path, it's clearly a very serious undertaking, but um, how, how does our sense of humor and delight um, Sorry. How important is it to retain it? The sense of humor. And delight. Delight. Uh, Well, I think it is one of the. uh, You don't retain it; you get it. (laughs) (laughs) Because the whole thing is a show, you know, and. As I said before, Shakespeare was quite right, you know. <coughs> and uh, once you see that, that this is quite an amusing show, and uh, you also realize that you yourself have been fooled for a long time by it, you can see the humor and everything. It's, uh, it's not difficult then. Yes. Sorry, it's rather big question really, it's just that although uh, I can feel the impact of everything you're saying when I think about myself, because <coughs> one can feel one's own contradictions and changes, I find it very difficult in that it undermines the whole Western thought, well that doesn't matter from certain points of view, but say politically um, it's rather useful to have a concept of the self
emotionally, intellectually, I find in some cases much more difficult. Well, there are several questions in one. I don't know which one to answer first. But the one with the 20-year gap is a good one. I'll, I'll, I'll take that one, okay? Um, you don't need to wait for a 20-year gap. What you do is you get yourself a photo album where you are depicted from the time you were born uh, until now. Most people have such things, either at home or in their mother's houses. And then look at these photos and stand in front of the mirror and put all these photos against the mirror and then you can see yourself lying on a little um, bare skin maybe and uh, <laughs> then maybe a first day in school and uh, getting uh, engaged or whatever and uh, so forth and there are dozens and dozens of these different people looking at you and each one of you is supposed to be me and then you look in the mirror and you think goodness gracious I have changed haven't I and uh, as you look at all these different uh, persons there, having practically, one could say, absolutely no resemblance to each other. I mean, the little thing on the bearskin and, and the one that got married, I mean, don't look even halfway alike. And then today, I mean, the, the difference is so enormous <coughs> that uh, one, do, one does get an inkling of the fact that there is um, a totally different body in existence and because the body has changed so much one may lose that identification system with the body but if one then is confronted and actually has lost this sense of self and there are very few people in the world who have but we, it is not um, uncommon to get a little nearer to that um, and then is confronted with people who haven't lost their sense of self at all. Uh, obviously, the only thing that is required is compassion, because one knows from one's own experience in the past that there's plenty of dukkha there. So um, the Buddha's compassion was considered to be uh, the epitome of compassion, and uh, it is said that every morning he sat in meditation and he threw out his net of compassion to catch any one person that he could particularly help that day, and uh, which means with clairvoyance he could see. And he would walk long distances just to help that one person because that one person would um, be ripe for uh, understanding his message. Naturally, most people in the world, if, uh, with very, very few exceptions, have a solid sense of self, and for that, uh, sociology and politics and all other ologies are necessary and useful. They've got to live with that. Whether it makes them happy or not is a mute question. Very little of that to be seen anywhere. So the uh, pathway to uh, happiness is not the pathway of the world. In fact, there is a very nice story about that. And um, since it fits in right now, I'll tell it to you.
It's a very famous story, which is told all over Sri Lanka and depicted in pictures, and nobody actually remembers the symbolism of it. A story is like this. When the Buddha was not enlightened yet, but was still the Bodhisattva, he went to what is today Bodhgaya and sat under the famous Bodhi tree, which, by the way, no longer exists. This is a, the one that exists now is a sapling of a sapling. And he sat under the famous Bodhi tree and made up his mind that he would sit there and meditate in order to get enlightened, no matter how long it would take, even if his flesh would rot from his bones, slightly longer than 45 minutes. And so he sat under this tree. Now this tree was very famous in the area. It had the reputation that a tree deva was living in it. A deva is a being of a a higher uh, level than human beings. And the tree deva would be a a boomer deva, so something like an earth deva, little beings that live in cabbages and make them grow and that type of thing. So this tree deva was supposed to live there. And this tree deva was supposed to have the ability to help women to become pregnant. So this was a um, a neighborhood um, uh, superstition. So there was a woman in the neighborhood called Sujata, and uh, she had been wanting to have a baby for quite a long time, and she finally went to this tree deva, and she prayed to the tree deva, and uh, said that if she would become pregnant and have a child, she would make a great offering to this tree deva. Well, she did have a child, but she didn't get around to make this offering. So one day, her maid was walking along and saw the Buddha sitting under this tree who was in the Bodhisattva and immediately assumed that that was a tree deva had come to collect the great offering. So she bowed down in front of this uh, deva and said that her mistress would come very soon and bring the offering, and he shouldn't go away. So he agreed not to go away, wasn't going to go away anyway. (laughs) And so this maid ran home to the mistress and said, you know, the tree deva has come out of the tree and is sitting under the tree and is waiting for your offering. So Sujata said, oh, I'll do that immediately. And uh, she apparently was the owner of a dairy, because the story says that she went to milk a hundred cows and gave the milk to drink fifty cows. And then she milked fifty cows and gave the milk to twenty cows. And then she milked twenty cows and gave the milk to one cow. And when she milked that cow, pure cream came out. (laughs) So then she cooked some rice in that cream. And uh, to this day, Monks and nuns in Sri Lanka are offered kiribat on all festive occasions. Kiribat is milk rice. Kiri is milk and bat's rice. So she cooked rice 
And then after the rice was cooked, she filled a golden bowl with that rice. And she wandered off to the tree where she found what she thought was a tree deva sitting under the tree. And she offered the golden bowl with the rice to the Bodhisattva and said that he should not only take the food but also accept the golden bowl. So he ate the rice and he said he would take the golden bowl and he would throw it in the river behind them. And if the golden bowl went downstream with the current, he wouldn't get enlightened. But if it went upstream against the current, he would be enlightened. So obviously it must have gone upstream against the current. But what this story tells us is of great importance to our own lives. Namely, it tells us this. Going downstream with the current is much easier. We don't have to paddle very hard. We go with public opinion. We are not being um, pushed aside because we're going the wrong way or being denigrated because obviously we have the wrong ideas, but we're going where everybody else is going. We're going along with our, not only public opinion, but our own instinct and our own impulses. But where do we end up? In the mud flats at the bottom of the river. Now, if we were to go upstream, much more difficult. It takes much more energy to paddle against the current, against the current of public opinion, against the current of our own instinct and our own impulses. And obviously, we're going to be much more lonely. It's so much harder that there are far fewer people going upstream. And those that are passing us, going downstream, are definitely going to call over to us and say, where do you think you're going? What are you trying so hard for? Sitting there with your knees aching, what nonsense. Why don't you go and have a nice walk and enjoy yourself? If we are determined and keep on paddling upstream, where do we end up? At the source, at the spring which has the clear water of purity, at the source of being, at the source of the river. So this story tells us in very clear terms that we're going to do something entirely different from everybody else. And we're not going to support the public opinion. But we have a chance. And if we want that chance, it's there for the taking. But as I said before, we'll only take it if we're sick and tired of our own dukkha. Then we'll take that chance. As long as we're not that sick and tired of it and still think there must be a loophole, that chance won't be something that we choose. It doesn't matter. It's quite all right. There's no compulsion. Everybody has to find their own way. Sometimes we go a little bit upstream and then we say, okay, that's enough. It's hard enough up to here. 
I've had it. I rest. That too is possible. The Buddha said, there's no way of standing still. The current will pull you away. You either keep paddling upstream or you're going to be pulled downstream. Imagine a log in the water with the current going by. It won't stand still. So, although we think we might be doing that, it doesn't work. But every one of us can only go as far upstream as our capacities allow us. And that's what exactly what we're doing. I told the story because I felt that it was somewhat connected to the question about politics, sociology, and the rest of all the things that we know in the world. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Think of a very beloved person in your life. Bring up the feeling for that person in your heart. And if there is no such person in your life, then bring up an ideal that you can love. And feel that (coughs) in your heart. Now transfer that same feeling that you have for your beloved person or for your ideal to yourself. There's no difference between humans. There's no difference between phenomena. All can be equally loved. Have that same feeling for yourself. Drench yourself in it. Surround yourself with it. And now transfer that same feeling to the person sitting nearest you. The same feeling that you have for your beloved person or for an ideal. Drench that person nearest you with that same feeling. Surround him or her with it.
bring up the feeling again for your beloved person and then spread it out over everyone here the same feeling Think of your parents, give them the same feeling that you have for your most beloved person, just because they are human, they are part of your life. They are part of this existence. For no other reason than that they are. Fill them and surround them with the same love that you have for your beloved person. <clears throat> Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Drench them with the warmth of your love. Embrace them with it without expecting the same in return. Think of all your good friends. Bring up the feeling for your beloved person again or for your ideal and then spread it. Spread it out of all your friends. Fill them with that same love. Embrace them with it without expecting that they return the same to you.
bring up that feeling again for your beloved person or for your ideal and then give it to your neighbors acquaintances colleagues at work all the people that you meet here and there and that you can think of. Let them have exactly the same love. Now think of anyone with whom you have difficulties. Bring up the same the feeling that you have for your beloved person or for your ideal. And then reach out with that feeling to your difficult person. Making no difference. Both of them are part of your life. Drench and surround your difficult person with the same love you have for your beloved one. Now bring up the feeling for your beloved person or for your ideal again. Feel it in your heart. And then let it flow out from your heart. Let it flow far and wide, where it will. Reaching out to people and other beings. touching their hearts, giving them joy.
Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel that lovingness in your heart that comes from spreading love to others. Feel it as sweetness and warmth. Fill yourself with it from head to toe. Surround yourself with it. So that there's no part of you that doesn't feel it. May beings everywhere have love in their heart. 